Our first reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our second reading is from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the word of God. Oh dear, I've become the dad, have I? <laughs> Blimey. What's going on? Here, take this. You realise Pete and I have got a lot in common. Oh, so much in common. We, I dress like him. Do you realise that? I dress like Pete. <laughs> I can say that because you realise that there's, for, for pastors around churches, you, you might not realise this, there's actually a uniform. There's a uniform that we all wear. Even Pete is wearing it today. I'm wearing it today. It's a check shirt. It's the pastor's uniform. So there you go. Yeah, the guy you Mary. <laughs> okay. As Pete said, we're in the second week of uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, series. And uh, I want to start by asking you a couple of questions. How, how do you find prayer? I mean... I actually think it's probably one of the most difficult areas of the Christian life in, in many ways. One of the hardest disciplines. What sorts of questions do you have? Um, and those, those, all sorts of ideas probably come to mind when, when you think of prayer. Um, do you find it easy? No, no, probably not. Well, that's okay. That's okay that you don't find prayer easy. I mean, it's, it's not often in life that we're expected to talk to someone who hasn't got a body. Okay, It's not often in life that we're expected to uh, communicate and relate to someone who we can't see. Okay, It's going to be hard. That's, that's to be expected. That's normal. So it, it's also not surprising that you might have a lot of questions about prayer. Questions like, does prayer really work? You know, you, it's not a two-way communication. I'm just, I'm just saying things into the, sometimes what seems like into the ether. How do I pray? What happens when I pray? Do I need to pray? I mean, isn't God sovereign? And so what's the use of praying? And probably the most distressing question that you might have is why aren't my prayers being answered? Often I think that our, our problems about prayer, both the theoretical problems we have and the practical 
problems we have have to do with the way we approach prayer. Pete uh, pointed out last week that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has given us a masterclass in prayer. He's giving us the principles. Jesus is giving us the principles of prayer, the, the, the main themes for our prayers. That's what's going on in the Lord's Prayer. Um, we often say the Lord's Prayer as a set prayer, as, as, as Pete said just a, a couple of minutes ago. But I, I actually don't think that was Jesus' intention when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. It, it's okay to say it as a, a set prayer. That's, that's okay. But it's not the main intention that Jesus had when he gave it to his disciples. Rather, Jesus has given us the major themes that we should pray about when we talk to him, when we talk to him and his father. Not just, it's not just a structural thing. It's not just because God's got a, got a thing about structure and order and he likes that sort of thing, but there's a far more profound reason uh, that, it's, that, that he's given us this prayer. He wants us to approach him and his father with the right attitude and with the right perspective. And the perspective he wants us to approach is the perspective of him and his father. And he wants us to have the right perspective ab about the world, about ourselves, about the people we interact with, but most fundamentally and mainly the right perspective about him. Now, in, in effect, the first part of the prayer is all about God. Have you noticed that? It's all about God. And you can't help but ask that question, well, why? And is it meaningful that there's a particular structure in this prayer? Well, yes, actually, there is. Because it lays down the foundation. It lays down the basis on which we approach God and how we go about that. We need to approach prayer with the right attitude and the right perspective. What that means, I think, is that we need to be told that because we're often so human-centered, we're so self-centered. We're used to thinking of ourselves first. We need to go back to square one. We need to go back to the basic understanding and we need to go back to God and to see things from his perspective as we come to him in prayer. Last week, Pete uh, dealt with where we should start with any prayer. God as our Father. Uh, how we can draw near to God because we are his children and the intimacy related to that. Today, we're looking at one verse, verse 10. I think it's up there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, your kingdom come is such a broad statement. What does it mean? Well, let's unpack it a little. The kingdom of God is a theme throughout the whole Bible. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, you don't find the term kingdom or kingdom of God very much at all. It's there, but we need to tease it out. And so that's why I gave you that uh, Bible reading on 2 Samuel 7. In that, the context is... Uh, King David 
declares that he wants to build a house for God. He's thinking, oh, I've got this magnificent palace up here in Jerusalem. Uh, I want to build a house. I want to build a temple for God. And in those days, it's a temple to dwell in for God. It's a, a symbol of God dwelling with his people. But God replies that David's uh, son Solomon was going to be the guy that was going to do that for him, not David. The point here in, in this 2 Samuel 7 passage is that David's dynasty will continue. Did you notice that? And it's going to continue forever. Unlike the previous king, King Saul, um, that wasn't the case for him. But for David's uh, uh, throne, it's going to last forever. And there will be a future everlasting kingdom. Now, in the context originally, uh, God is talking to David about his family, about his kingdom, uh, and, and, and the line continuing through his son Solomon. And they, no doubt, uh, in, at, in that particular context, were thinking about a, a geographic kingdom, a kingdom with boundaries, a kingdom that was a land, and by the way, that's why the Jews today are so intent upon keeping their land in Israel because that's how they understood it in the Old Testament and that, that's why they currently fight so hard for it. But as we know, David's line, King David's line was broken and the Israelites were forced out of the land and the kingdom was taken away from them. And that was actually prophesied in that, in that passage. You might not have seen it uh, this morning where he says, with floggings inflicted by human hands. And they were sent into exile away from the promised land. And they thought was, that all was lost. But then, as you come to the New Testament, and as you think of the time of the New Testament, remember their situation when Jesus was around? They were an occupied nation. They were living in the land, but it was being ruled by somebody else. It was being ruled by the Romans. Well, at that time, the New Testament writers, Matthew and Luke in particular, remember how they spend time um, listing the line, the dynasty of Jesus, his, his pedigree back to King David, uh, right, right back uh, further than that even. That's because it's showing us that Jesus is part of that Davidic line. And, and he is saying to the people, the Davidic line has continued, just as it, was, uh, as it was prophesied here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so that gives a physical, physical connection uh, with God's kingdom back in David's time that Jesus belonged to. But not only that, then Jesus uh, in John chapter 2 verse 19 says, you remember these words? Destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And that actually, towards the end of the Gospels, uh, is one of the accusations that they bring against Jesus, that he was claiming this. But of course, he was referring to himself when he said that. You see, he was saying that Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. If you see Jesus, 
you see God. And that's why he's saying that the symbol of God's kingdom amongst them physically, which was in those days the temple, the temple that, that symbolized God being with them, is now no longer the temple. It's no longer a physical building. It is a person. It is Jesus. You see what's going on there? When Jesus talks in those terms uh, about him being the temple, he's internalizing the idea of the kingdom. So the kingdom is no longer, will it be a geographic kingdom uh, around boundaries, a particular piece of land. It is no longer an earthly kingdom. Now that's really important to understand that he himself Jesus himself is the manifestation. He is the presence of God himself. And God's kingdom then has to do with not a physical boundary, uh, land, but with God's rule in people's lives. So it's a new idea of kingdom, isn't it? We used to kingdom as you know, a physical boundary, but it's not that. It's not to do with geography. And that was seen by the fact that the temple no longer has significance for us as Christians because we worship not in a temple, but we worship with Jesus directly. So when Jesus prays, your kingdom come, he's saying two things. Let me just spell that out. Firstly, he's saying, may God's rule be exercised right here and now. Your kingdom come. May it happen now that God's control, his ruling, might come now. Now, of course, God is a king of all things. He's sovereign, and his rule is in existence already. And it always has been. So he's not asking for it to be established to start. Rather, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're asking for God's rule to be exercised to be extended, to be grown throughout the world. So what, what are you actually asking? You're actually asking for people to become Christians. You're actually asking for God's kingdom, which is his people, to grow and to flourish. For people to submit to Jesus as the king, to join his kingdom and to enjoy God's kingdom rule. So what does it mean, your kingdom come? It means we're asking for people to become Christians. Do you realize that? That they might leave, we're asking God that his kingdom might come and that people might leave their other religions, leave their other secular ideologies and put their trust in Jesus. We are praying for the spread of the, of the Christian faith. Now, do you really want that? You know, it's easy to mouth off these prayers, uh, especially, as Pete said, we've, see, we've known them for so long, probably, if you've been in Christian circles for a while. Do you really want that? Is that what you really want? You will only really want that, I reckon, if you have a positive experience of that yourself. 
if that is real to you. You will really only want it if you know what it is to submit your life to Jesus, to have a living and real relationship with him now. That your life in this spiritual, non-material kingdom governs you, controls you, dominates the way you think and the way you act and that you love that. Is that how you see your faith with God? Not just because you know you like systems, you like a, a religion, you like form and structure, you like being submissive and you like being subjugated to somebody else. Living in God's kingdom gives you a meaning and a purpose in life and an experience of real love, true love, the way love was meant to be. And we see that ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ and in his life and death and resurrection. And that if that is real for you, that impacts and changes your life for the better. And it impacts and influences those around you as well. And they see that. That is also what your kingdom come means. Us being more under his rule, more tasting more and more of the future of what this kingdom is going to be like and tasting it now. It means you desire to become more and more like Jesus and that you will actively pursue that in your life. Your kingdom come. Are you doing that? Is that real for you? The second thing your kingdom come means is that you are looking forward to and wanting God to hurry up and complete the kingdom. You see, the problem is that this kingdom, this relationship with God, with, with Christ, we only have a taste of it, really. It's not complete yet. It's not full. With Jesus coming to earth, we had a breaking in of that kingdom. We're given the Holy Spirit and we have a taste of what it's like to relate to God and to, to Christ. We have that in our hearts, in our lives, but it's not fully there yet, is it? Because there's a lot that goes on in the world and in our lives that is messy, that isn't as nice as it should be. We live in this in-between time. We're sort of caught in an in-between time. Jesus has started something. He started a kingdom, but he hasn't yet finished it. It is still to be completed. And so we are awaiting his return for him to make the kingdom perfect, to make it complete. We have a taste of it. We know what it's like to love and to follow Christ. But gee whiz, it's not, it's not, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, is it? Do you yearn for that to happen? Do you yearn for that completion to come? I, I sure do. I sure do. There are so many things in this world and in, this, in my life 
that are messy, that are broken, that are wrong. Don't you wish that your motives were pure? Don't you wish that you didn't keep letting people down? Don't you wish that you actually stopped stuffing up (laughs) and making a mess of things? Or are you sick of not achieving what you set out to do with your, your, your good intentions? Maybe for you, life isn't like that. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe it's close to perfect. Uh, maybe, in fact, it's pretty sac- satisfactory at present. Well, wouldn't it be nice to be just more than, more than just satisfactory? Wouldn't it be nice if life was far more the way we really want it to be and expect it to be. Even better than it is now. I don't know about you, but I tell you what, there have been plenty of stuff-ups in my 60 years of life. Plenty of them. And I look forward to a completed kingdom when everything is put right, when everything is resolved. Mind you, realize what you're asking when you ask for that. Realize what you're asking when you're asking for Jesus to return. You are asking for God's good and perfect kingdom to come and for it to come in all its fullness. And that means, sure, the removal of all the yucky things around us, to remove all the evil in the world. That means the bringing in of God's justice. That means God exercising judgment of a final decision on the fate of many people in this world, on this planet. The separation of good from bad, of heaven and hell. Or as Revelation puts it, the establishing of a new heaven and a new earth. You might be familiar with this passage in Revelation chapter 21. Let me read just the first few verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's a fantastic passage, isn't it? It sounds fantastic. But we often forget to go on to the next few verses. Verse 8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Mm. That's a bit more sobering. Don't pray this prayer unless you realize what you're praying for. 
your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is where God is and where his will is perfectly done. Everything happens perfectly there. God reigns fully. And so we're asking that this might be also more the case here on earth. This is really asking for there, be, for there to be a continual advancement of God's purposes and his ways here on earth in the midst of a world that has plenty of messy stuff, plenty of evil in it. Well, how does this happen? How can it be done? How can God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, it has to be, on the one hand, a work of God, doesn't it? Uh, He can only really achieve it. He only can change people to conform to his will and purposes. That's his doing. And we're asking him to do that in praying this prayer. But we're also, we as humans are also, and his people are also part of his will and purposes being done. That is his way. That's the way he's decided to bring his will into the earth. You thought, thought about that? You are not converted to bask in the glory of God's kingdom. You're not converted to feel warm and comfortable and fuzzy about your relationship with God. We are converted to take part in the making of God's kingdom, in the accomplishing of God's will on earth. We are not to be passive, but to be active in this. Now, of course, that implies that we know what God's will is. What is God's will? We need to think of God's will in terms of the big picture. And to find out that, we need to spend time understanding how God thinks. How do you do that? You read your Bibles. You spend time in God's Word. That is where we find out God's will and God's purposes. It is not about finding out about particular instances of what's going to happen in your life, what decisions you should, you should make, what job you should have, what you should, who you should marry, uh, where you should live, those sorts of things, but rather God's will as you read it in the Bible, is that he wants, to, he wants people to know him and to follow him and to put their trust in him and for him to be given the glory that he deserves, for, them, for, for people to trust Jesus, to trust his son. That is God's will as you read about it in the Bible. His will, therefore, is that we do whatever we can in this life to allow people that opportunity to know and to love his son Jesus. It's that simple. That's what God's will is. It's that simple. (laughs) And it's that complicated. It's that complicated as well. What will further that happening 
in the way that you live your life. That's what we need to think about. What about the decisions you make in your life? What about the words you say and the way you conduct yourself in relationships in the way that you treat others? Let me give you one, one very, very small, uh, almost trivial example. Something's been going on in the US lately. I hope you realize that. They have a new president. And no doubt, if you have any contact with any other human being on this planet, something has come up in conversation about that in this last week. There's, it's very controversial, isn't it? A lot of discussion going on, whether it be with your friends or family or work colleagues or wherever it might be. Everyone's thinking about it. Everyone's thinking, what's, what's the Trump world going to be like? Well, as people who are seeking God's will, that his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven, that his kingdom might come, what are you doing about those sorts of conversations? You're saying, oh, yeah, Trump, what a disaster that's going to be. What are we going to do? What's, how, how's the world going to turn out? Well, that's, a, that's a, a pretty average sort of response, I think. Can you think about ways in which you can talk about it such that you bring God into the conversation because surely if God dominates you and your thinking and your life then that's got to come out of your mouth I don't know I'm not saying you know Bible bash someone and beat them to death so that they become a Christian um, but I'm talking about how 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 does the fact that Donald Trump has been elected the, the president of the United States impact the way you think about life and how can you communicate that to the people around about you? How can that lead you into a discussion about more important things than Donald Trump? <laughs> That's the challenge. I, I haven't got a, a nice, neat little package for you to give to people. You need to work that out. You need to express it in ways that are real to you. It might be something about, but fundamentally, even if there's you know, this evil person called Trump ruling the world, God is actually still in control. And how you express that to your, your friends who aren't Christians is up to you. You've got to work that out. But that's what, that's what you're praying for when you pray this prayer. But you'll know how to do that. If we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then we've got to live that way. That also means that there will be a cost involved. You realize that, don't you? It's costly being a Christian. In Luke chapter 22, verse 44, we see how Jesus deals with God's will. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. It's just before he's arrested, just before he's about to be crucified. And he says these words, Father, if you are willing... Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, praying that God's will be done may invoke all sorts of costly acts on your part to see this accomplished. 
Do not be naive about that. Well, how does all this work out in practice? Let's finish off with a few things. There, as I said before, there's a reason why Jesus prays the way he prays and he instructs his disciples to do so, to follow the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Remember I said at the beginning we need to approach prayer with the right attitude and the right perspective. Often we are too human-centered. We need to see things from God's perspective. And that is why this prayer starts with three petitions about God and then goes on with three petitions about ourselves. The first three put us in the right frame of mind to go on to the last three. That's what Jesus is doing in this prayer. In other words, the asking of things from God must be done in the context of those things we know and understand about God. Let's think about that for a minute. Let me go to another part of the Bible. John chapter 15, verse 7. It says this, If you remain, Jesus is speaking, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You know, it's one of those open slather passages of Scripture where, where uh, it, it, it looks like I can ask for anything and it'll happen. Isn't that fantastic? Just imagine for a minute, and, and I'll actually, uh, I'm thinking of a particular person I know at present. You, imagine you have a close friend or someone you know who is very ill. In fact, they are close to death. They have cancer and they haven't got long to live or they've just been diagnosed. And you're a Christian and you take hold of this promise that's written in John 15. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And you ask for healing. What is your expected answer from God when you do that? If our prayer is for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done, then that must, if we put God as number one in our lives, that God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done must override any personal preferences we might have. And, and, and also any preferences we might have for what we think is the good and betterment of other people now that sounds really harsh doesn't it i mean i know someone who's dying from cancer at present it sounds so uncaring so unloving not to passionately want god to heal my friend but don't misunderstand me my heart's desire is for this cancer to disappear and for this person to live for another you know, 10, 20, 30 years. But even greater than that is for my God to be seen as God and for him to be given the glory that he deserves. That is even greater desire than whether someone I know lives. That's heavy stuff. You see, I want to see God's kingdom advanced. That's why I live. That's what I live for. 
a person being healed may or may not be in line with these things. It may or may not. I've seen both happen. I've seen people miraculously healed. And I've seen people die. As hard as it might be to stomach, it might not be the case that this person lives according to God's will. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't desire and show love to that person and and pray for them to be healed. But rather than, rather, uh, what I'm suggesting is that we pray in a balanced way. That even in the hardness of that pastoral situation, that personal situation where, where someone is in enormous pain and suffering and looking down the barrel of the ending of their life, we need to pray in a balanced way and recognise that the things that we desire and that seem so, so obvious to us might not actually be what God wants. or might not be what we expect. So a balanced prayer, I think, should be something along the lines of, well, we we desire healing because of our love for the person, so we'll pray for them to be healed. So we'll pray, please God, heal her. Yet, Lord, you know best what should happen in this situation And we desire most of all that you are glorified through this seemingly horrible event. So we pray that you might be exalted as a result of this, whatever might happen. I think that's how we've got to pray. That's how Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, take this away from me. I don't want to die but not my will, your will be done. Can I suggest also, this is very somber stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Talking about this. But can I suggest that this is actually a daring and exciting way to pray. Because it depends on pure trust. This is you putting the livelihood of this person in God's hands, in somebody else's hands, out of your control altogether. And you have no idea how it's going to turn out. And that is what faith is. That is what faith is. Trusting in this God. So often our prayers lack the right perspective. How often do we launch into prayers just asking God to do stuff without even considering the one we're approaching? That shows that we're basically self-centered. If you didn't already know that, you should. (laughs) And and we're very need-centered. And the danger, of course, is that we turn God into a spiritual vending machine. You know, we push a button and out comes exactly what what you ordered. Or we think of God like a Santa Claus God. You know, a big merry old man who will give you a nice present. 
there is no doubt that God wants the very best for us and for everyone. But his idea of what the very best might be might not be our idea. We're living in a fallen and broken world, a world of trouble, of hardship, of disasters, of pain. God's love is sometimes all we have to cling to. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see what Paul is saying there? He's not saying Christians will avoid hardship. Bad things won't happen. I mean, Paul experienced those things himself, didn't he? Rather, he's saying, even if these things happen, and for most of us they will, one way or another, we will not be separated from God. Nothing can separate us from God. If we want prayer to bring us a trouble-free life, then we're in trouble. <laughs> no promise here of escape from trouble from that Romans 8 passage. The promise is one of never being separated from God, from the love of God, despite what happens. You see, God's character is one of love, a love that can never be quenched, never taken away from us. And a person that prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, desires above all else that God might be given the glory he deserves. Well, let's finish our time. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together, keeping those things in mind. It'll be up on the screen. Let's pray this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.